Good to see all of you this morning, South Fellowship. My name is Scott Winnig, and my wife and I, Melanie, normally attend uh, first hour. Uh, if you know me, you know that uh, I'm a pastor who masquerades as a seminary professor. And so uh, because of that, Pastor Ryan on occasion very graciously lets me uh, come and share here at South. And what, what a great church we have here. I mean, incredible music, choir, awesome band. Yeah, and now we're adding, you know, Yvonne, and I've had Yvonne in, in class, and she's incredibly gifted and godly. And then there's Dan. <laughs> if you've been around Dan... It's just like having Jesus around. So, yeah, thank you, Dan. Yay, God, yeah. We're going to continue our series this morning out of 1 John, which is entitled Dwell. Before we do that, I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer. Father, this morning we come before you because you're our great God and our Savior. Thank you for the gift of Jesus. We thank you for the power of the Spirit in our lives. And Lord, wherever we're at today, whether we're on the younger end or the older end of life, whether we're single or we're married, Lord, whether we are struggling financially or we feel like we have a lot of resources, uh, Lord, whether we're in good health or poor health, Lord, I just pray that you would make yourself known to us today that you would speak to us today through your word, that you would encourage our hearts and instruct our minds. And we pray this now in Jesus' name and for our sake. Amen. Over the past few months, I've had the privilege of preaching at a small church down in Castle Rock. Uh, their senior pastor retired at the end of June, so they're in the process of looking for a new pastor, so I've been in and out of the pulpit. Uh, it's a healthy little church, uh, it has a lot of life, and it has some really, really great people in it. Uh, one of the people that I've been able to get to know a little bit is an 84-year-old man by the name of Dick. And he and his wife, Bonnie, are core members of the church, and they always sit right in the second row, and they're really attentive. And so one Sunday after worship, I uh, pulled Dick aside, and I asked him, I said, uh, when you were working full-time, what did you do for a living? And he said, well, I had my own insurance business, but then very quickly what he did was he segued the conversation away from insurance to an incident that happened to him when he was 40. He said, let, let me tell you about what happened to me when I was 40 years old. He said, uh, Bonnie and I weren't churchgoers, but some friends of ours were attending a church out in Lakewood where the senior pastor was almost as good of a preacher as Ryan Paulson. And they invited them to go to church and they started to attend there on and off. And he said, after about a month, one day, the senior pastor at the end of the sermon gave an invitation to come forward and receive Christ as Savior. He said, I felt this incredible compulsion to do so. So I got up out of my chair and I walked forward. And that day I prayed to receive Jesus. And he said, from that point on, everything in my life began to change. He said, my marriage became more intimate and committed. He said, uh, Bonnie and I began to see the insurance business not just as a way to make money, but as a way to minister to people and help people. 
He said we really got involved with track ministries. We'd have evangelistic tracks printed up and we sent all that out in our insurance literature. He said eventually we got involved in a program called Evangelism Explosion where we would go out in neighborhoods and share the gospel with people. And he said then the thing the Lord really put on our hearts in the last 20 years, and these guys are in their 80s now, he said, what we do is we now like to travel around the world and we go into closed countries and we take in copies of the Bible so people can have the scripture in their own language. Well, one of the Sundays, Dick and Bonnie weren't there and being in their 80s, I was a little worried about their health and they came the next Sunday and I said, hey, we really missed you guys. And he said, well, last Sunday, our granddaughter was helping to lead worship at her church and we just had to go be supportive of her. And I thought, I love these guys. They have incredibly great values. I think uh, one of the things we would look at from Dick and then Bonnie's experience is the personal commitment they made to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior over 40 years ago impacted both of them. Impacted them spiritually, impacted their marriage, impacted their family, impacted all the people around them, and now they're making an impact in a positive way globally. I think their experience shows us the biblical truth that when Jesus said in John chapter 3, you must be born again, if you get born again, God's spirit comes within you and you now get his spiritual DNA. And when you have God's spiritual DNA, that determines where your life will go now and it will determine your destiny then. Uh, that's true for you, and that's true for me. Our spiritual DNA determines our destiny temporally and eternally. And this morning, what I'd like to do is show you the truth of that from this passage we're going to look at out of 1 John. But to make that really personal and to make it relevant, what I want to do is ask some questions along the way. And each of these questions are questions that only you can answer for yourself. So let's start with our first text and our first question. Here's the question. <laughs> Who's your daddy? We're going to get to that in just a minute, but before we get to that, we've got to unpack what John's telling us in this text. Let's read this together. He says, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness, but you know that he, that is Jesus, appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, don't let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil's been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Now, John says a number of interesting, and I would suggest very provocative things in these five verses. Uh, for starters, here in verse 4, he describes sin as lawlessness. Uh, the word in the original text for lawless or lawlessness is anomi. 
And what that word means is a reckless disregard for the things and the ways of God. It's a word that describes an arrogant attitude of radical autonomy that rejects and disobeys God because it's natural to do that. This is a picture of St. Augustine, or as we know him in the history of the Christian movement, Augustine of Hippo. Uh, You can see he lived in the late 4th and the early 5th century. Uh, Augustine was probably the greatest theologian in the history of Christianity. Uh, He was North African by birth, thus his darker color, but he was Roman by culture. Well, Augustine thought and wrote on all kinds of things, but one of the preeminent contributions he made to the history of the church and theology was he was trying to explain what happened to us as human beings. So he went back to Genesis chapter 2. And he looked at that description of us in Adam and Eve in the garden. And everything was good there, and Adam and Eve were in this perfect environment. And Augustine wrote in Latin, that was the language of the church and the language that he spoke, and he said that in Genesis chapter 2, Adam and Eve were what he called peccae non peccare. They were able not to sin because their nature was still really, really good. But then he went to Genesis chapter 3, and you know Adam and Eve are tempted there by the certain Satan. And then they choose to disobey God, and they fall, and it's a catastrophe. And it's ruined everything, and we're still living with that today in October or November of 2017. And Augustine said what happened there was their nature changed because they sinned, and now they were what he called non-peke non picari They're no longer not able to sin. It's their nature now to sin. And we're their children, and that's our nature. Uh, G.K. Chesterton was one of the greatest Christian writers of the early 20th century. He was English. And on one occasion, the London Times had an editorial. And they asked at the top of the editorial, what's wrong with the world? Well, Chesterton wrote a letter into the editors the following week. Uh, Dear sir, in regard to your editorial, what's wrong with the world? I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. In our natural fallen state, we automatically live in rebellion against God. And therefore, we're part of what's wrong with the world. Well, if that wasn't bad enough, look what John goes on to describe down here in verse 8. He says, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Uh, He says that the father of Anomi, this lawless attitude of rebellion is the devil, otherwise known as Satan. Now, the Bible actually talks quite a bit about Satan, who, from what we can gather, was this preeminent archangel who opposed God and rebelled and eventually was thrown out of heaven. And then from various other hints in the Scripture, in Isaiah and Ezekiel and the Gospels, and then in the book of Revelation... We get the strong impression that the devil's core sin was pride and self-sufficiency. Once again, this notion of radical autonomy that by its very nature opposes God. 
Maybe it was the great 17th century English poet and Puritan, John Milton, who described this mentality best in his great work, Paradise Lost, where Milton put into the mouth of Satan, it's better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven. Well, from what the Bible says, and we can get this even from this text, ever since Satan set himself up in total opposition to God, his work, his purpose, his desire is to destroy all of God's creation, starting with people. And in our natural fallen state, we go along with him, either consciously or otherwise, and we make a mess of things. Now that's the bad news of this text. But the good news, and we're going to see this in the text, is that God wants to free us from the control of Satan, the chains of sin, and the penalty of death, and transform the way we live our lives now. To see how God has done this, let's go on and look again at verses 5 and 8 of this text, which are bolded here. Notice what John says. But you know that he, that is Jesus, appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. And then down here at the end of verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Well, God's response to the enormously destructive work of the devil and the horribly fallen condition of humanity was the incarnation. Well, the incarnation is the event that we all celebrate at Christmas. It's the event where the eternal Son of God was born as a baby to Joseph and Mary in Bethlehem, and then he grew to become the man, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus went around Galilee and Judea, and he proclaimed the kingdom of God, and he lived a perfect life, but then eventually he was betrayed. And he died this horrible, horrible death on a Roman execution rack that we call the cross. And the reason he did that was to destroy the devil's work and deliver us from our sins. One of the most spiritually formative experiences I've had in the last couple of years was I came across this book by this lady, Fleming Rutledge. Uh, She's a pastor and a writer, and she is amazing. And the title of her book, as you can see here, is The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ. Uh, She says that it took her 16 years to write this book, but she's been thinking about the question, why did Jesus have to die by crucifixion since she was 14? I mean, crucifixion was the most horrible way anybody could die, especially in the ancient world. Why did Jesus have to die that way? And she concludes through her very sophisticated, very thoughtful, very awesome book, that the reason Jesus had to die that way was to show us the depth of our fallenness and the horrible work of the devil, but also to show us the enormous love of God. And that became clear in the incarnation. So the incarnation and Christ's death simply laid the foundation for his resurrection from the dead and then his eventual ascension to heaven and then whereby he pours out the gifts of the Holy Spirit that allow you and me, if we're open to him, to receive him, be born again, 
and get his DNA. And that's exactly what John talks about in the next two verses. Look at what he says here. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. We're going to come back to that word seed here in just a second. They cannot go on sinning because they've been born of God. Once again, the emphasis on being born again, getting God's DNA. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. Uh, Friends, John's really clear here. He says, when we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior, we get his spiritual seed. And the word that he uses there is the Greek word sperma, And what it means is we get his nature. In other words, it proves we are now born again of God. Now, everybody in this room knows this. Children all get their DNA from their parents. When the sperm joins with the egg, a new child is formed. And that child gets their DNA from their mom and their dad, just like we got ours from our parents. Well, what John's doing here is he's using that biological reality as a metaphor for the spiritual reality that when men and women and children come to faith in Christ, they're spiritually born again, and now they have a new DNA. And over time, over time, over time, things begin to change in them because now they have a new nature that's at work in them. Now, this text raises a question, at least in my mind, I don't know if it does in yours, because John says this, no one who's born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they've been born of God. Does does that mean that after we get God's DNA, we don't sin anymore? And the answer to that is, no, that's not what that means. Of course, you and I, even though we have God's DNA, we still sin. What John is saying here is is that God's children can't continue to live in sin. They can't consistently practice sin because it violates the new nature of Jesus that now resides in them. Friends, if you and I have God's spiritual DNA, yeah, we're going to make mistakes, we're going to fumble, we're going to sin at times, but that's not going to be something we want to do consistently because we're going to feel bad about it, we're going to be convicted by the Holy Spirit of that, and we're going to repent and then move towards maturity. My wife Melanie and I have some really good friends who live back in Indiana, and their names are Dave and Angie, and he's a pastor, and she's a teacher and a writer, and they have two sons, Taylor, who's 18 and is off at college, and then Jameson, who's 16 and is a junior in high school. Well, about five or six years ago, when uh, Jameson was 10 or 11, his dad gave an invitation, and he came forward and received Christ, and he said, I I want to be baptized, and he got baptized a couple of weeks after that. In other words, he said, I want to make... God, my father. Well, about a month ago, Angie took Jameson on a trip to visit a college. 16-year-old boy, and those of you who have had 16-year-old boys, you realize that sometimes they they can get in kind of grumpy moods and stuff. And so all morning, he was grumbling and grousing and had a bad attitude. And finally, Angie said, Jameson, I want you to look at something. And she pulled out her phone, and she punched up Galatians 5.22. 
The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Jameson, you said that you became a Christian five years ago and you even got baptized in front of the whole church. I'm not seeing much of the fruit of the Spirit right now, bud. And apparently he repented on the spot and they had a really good day. Now, as we summarize this portion of the text, it forces us to ask this question. Who's your daddy? Whose spiritual DNA do you possess? Now, if by some chance you're here and you don't claim to be a follower of Jesus, that's great. We love having you here at South Fellowship. That's one of the reasons we exist. Or if maybe you just came in today because you came with a friend and this whole Christian thing's new to you, that's terrific. This is all free information for you. You can meditate on it and think about it. And if you want to come talk to Ryan or Dan or Larry or me afterwards, I'm sure we'd love to do that. But if you're here and you know Jesus as your Savior, what this text tells us is that you have God's spiritual DNA and that will determine the course of your life now. And it will determine where you end up when you die. Friends, our spiritual DNA determines our destiny. Let me show you one of the implications of that from our next question and our next text. I'm going to dial back in the text a little bit and ask this question, what's your calling? What's our calling? Well, let's look at what John says here. And now, dear, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, that is Jesus, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he's righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Once again, you've got God's spiritual DNA. See what great love the Father's lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And this is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Now, in this section, John tells you and me that we can acquire the Father's spiritual DNA and be called his children because of the awesome love that he's poured out on us. Um, I don't know if you've uh, seen that latest Walmart commercial. They got way ahead of the curve on this one for Christmas. I mean, it, it's a great commercial because what they did was they have all these little kids and, and they're in their living rooms on Christmas morning and then one of the parents is back here in another room or over in another room. And the parent got this really cool gift. And obviously they got it at Walmart. And so they bring in this cool wrap gift and they give it to the kid on Christmas morning. And there's just music in the background. There's no sound. But they show the kids mouthing, the best gift I ever got. And I love you and you're awesome. And it's just a great commercial. I mean, it really warms your heart. And that's exactly what they wanted because they want you to go to Walmart and buy their stuff. Those kids were exploding with joy in that commercial. And that's what they want to show you. Well, in this text, John is exploding with joy because the Father has poured out his love for us in Christ's incarnation, his death and his resurrection, and I would add his incomprehensible willingness to make us born again and give us his spiritual DNA. And that's why we can be called the children of God. 
But what's really, really interesting, and I would suggest what's really crucial in this portion of the text, is verse 28, what's bolded here. And now, dear children, continue in him. Uh, In the original text, grammatically, this is what we call an imperative. In other words, it's not a suggestion. It's not just a nice idea. It's a command. And the word continue can be translated remain or abide, or as we've defined it for this series, dwell. It means, and I think Ryan pointed this out last week in a sermon, it means to follow Jesus and practice the life he has called us to live if we claim to have the Father's DNA. See, to dwell in Jesus means we follow his call in every aspect of our lives, relationally and sexually and financially and occupationally and intellectually. Because Jesus is trying to lead us through the course of our lives, and he wants what's best for us. Uh, I'm something of a student of leadership, and I read books on leadership, and I watch videos about leadership, and I've had the fortune to be around some really, really good leaders in my life. And about 10 days ago, I was watching a video where this lady who teaches the Harvard College of Business, Nancy Cohn, was being interviewed. And she's a historian of leadership and teaches leadership there. And she gave one of the best definitions of leadership I have ever heard in my life, which she said she got from the writer David Foster Wallace. And I want to read this to you and then unpack why I like it so much. She said that real leaders are those individuals who help us overcome the limitations of our own weaknesses, laziness, selfishness, and fears, and get us to do harder, better things than we can get ourselves to do on our own. Now, I've been around some leaders at different points who were able to do that for a period of time, but they're human beings. The reason I love that definition is because it describes perfectly who Jesus is. He leads and inspires and helps us to do what's best for us in spite of our weaknesses and our failures and our limitations. And that's why, friends, our calling is to dwell in Him, abide in Him, and follow Him throughout the course of our lives. And let me make this really, really clear. That does not mean we do that perfectly. We are not going to. It does mean we do it persistently. You know, some of you came into this room this morning and you are tired. Uh, You've been in or you've just come through a weary season of life. And as you walked in here this morning you were emotionally limping in to sit in your seat. Some of you in this room are really, really hurting. You've suffered some sort of relational breakdown, some sort of heartbreak or loss in your life, and you're just trying to get through today and figuring, I'll just try to take it a day at a time, and I I might get through this coming week. A lot of us in this room are anxious. We're concerned about our kids, 
We got the stress of the holidays coming up, and that's really stressful for a lot of us. And then we look at what's going on in our country and our culture, especially with all these crazy mass shootings. And those feelings can sometimes overwhelm us and cause us to shut down. Friends, wherever you are at today, whether you're in a really, really great place or in a tough place, I want to encourage you to do exactly what John commands here, and that is continue in Jesus, dwell in Jesus, follow your call to abide in Jesus. He's our Savior, He's our Lord, and He is the best leader who ever lived. Friends, he's the one who said, come unto me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. See, John comes to us in this portion of the text as a good pastor, and he tells you and he tells me, If you know who your daddy is, and that's our heavenly father, you'll have his spiritual DNA. And then if you have that DNA, what you want to do is dwell or continue in the Lord Jesus. And if you persistently follow him and follow his calling, he'll help you navigate the ups and downs, the ins and outs of life. And then he's going to do something even more amazing And astounding than that, and that takes us to the next two verses of our text and our last question. Where's your hope? Look at what John says here. This is great. Dear friends, now we are children of God. We've got his spiritual DNA. And what we will be, this is great, what will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he's pure. Uh, This portion of the text shows us the absolute necessity of having the hope of our eternal destiny with Jesus at the very center of our lives. And friends, the reason we want to do that is because hope is the fuel that our lives run on. When we get really sick, and I don't know if you've been, ever been really, really sick in your life, but when we get really sick, we need hope that the resurrected, glorified Jesus will come and heal us. When our marriages and our families get tangled, and sometimes they do, we need hope that the resurrected and glorified Lord can help us get those untangled so we can live in relational and emotional health. Oh, in a culture like ours, that's a culture of division and with all its political dysfunction, we need hope that Jesus is in control and he's redeeming people and building his church and advancing the kingdom. And friends, since Jesus someday is going to return and take all of us who have his spiritual DNA with him as his children to live with him forever, can I suggest, can I suggest that by his grace, We do the best we can to live as the most hopeful people around. Did you know that hope actually has healing power? Um, I want to share with you the results of a study that was done a few years ago. This is fascinating. Listen to what they found. In one study, 122 men who had a heart attack and survived 
were surveyed on their degree of hopefulness versus pessimism. Of the 25 most pessimistic, 21 died within eight years. Of the 25 most optimistic or hopeful, only six had died. Now listen to this. This is amazing. Loss of hope increased the odds of death by 300%. It predicted death more accurately than any medical factor, including blood pressure, degree of heart damage, or cholesterol. Well, you know what that means, don't you? You know what that means? It means it's always better to eat donuts and hope than broccoli and despair. <laughs> Friends, Jesus wants us to focus our hope on him and his return. And this is a great passage because it says we will be like him. Well, what's he like now? He's not only resurrected, he's glorified. And if you want to get a description of that, read the encounter that Pastor John had with him later on in Revelation chapter 1. See, friends, when that day comes and Jesus returns, if we have died in Christ, we will be resurrected and glorified. And all of those who are still alive will be resurrected and raptured and glorified. And we will be like him. Now, I don't know about you, but that's becoming increasingly important to me. Um, This is just my opinion, and you may disagree with this, but uh, in my opinion, one of the greatest meals ever invented by men or women is a really, really great pizza and a really good craft beer. I mean, those just seem to go together perfectly. Well, I used to be able to enjoy that, but about 15 years ago, I started to get these really bad headaches on occasion, and The doctors still don't know what causes them, but one of the things we do know is any kind of alcohol whatsoever cannot enter my blood, and I'll get a headache. So I've had to give up the beer part of the pizza and beer equation. And so I'm really, really looking forward to this day because it reminds me of that passage. (laughs) It reminds me of that passage in the Gospels where Jesus says, many will come from east or west. And they will sit down at table and they'll dine with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They're talking about dining. And I'm thinking, awesome, heavenly pizza and great beer. Awesome. Here we go. That's terrific. Friends, if you have the Father's DNA, your destiny is determined. But let me ask you this question because only you can answer it. Where's your hope. When this life ends, and someday, friends, it's going to end, where do you want to spend eternity? Back in the fall of 2003, some friends of mine and I formed a Bible study, and after about three months, the Bible study had grown to about 30 people, and uh, the core of the Bible study got together one day, and we said, do we want to take this to the next level, which is a church plant? And we, we said, yeah, we, we, we do. And so toward the end of December of 2003, we contacted all kinds of churches down in the Englewood and South Littleton area and all kinds of businesses to see if we could rent a place on Sunday morning or Saturday night. And nobody would rent to us. 
But then eventually we stumbled across the leadership of South Fellowship and they said, well, uh, we can't give you anything on Saturday night or Sunday morning because we're using our facility, but we will give you two rooms down here in our early learning center on Thursday night and you can just use those for free. We won't charge you. So on Thursday night, January 15th, 2004, 47 of us gathered and we formed Aspen Grove Community Church because we wanted to name it after the shopping mall and target this area of the city. And so we met every Thursday night through January and February on into March. And that year, Easter was on Sunday, April 18th. And we realized, well, we can't really do Easter Sunday service down here on Thursday nights. So we rented out two rooms at the Old World Venture Center down here on Mineral. And we held our first Sunday morning service there, and it was Easter Sunday. And we planned, and we prayed, and we all decided we're going to do a really as good of a job of programming as we could. But we really wanted to invite family members and friends who did not yet know Jesus, because we were con concerned about reaching lost people. Well, Sunday morning came, and we had this great brunch. The people who put it on did a great job, and we had a kids program, and that went really well, and the music was terrific. And I thought the sermon went pretty well, and, and we, we just had a great Sunday, and 175 people showed up, a lot of whom didn't know, yet know the Lord. Well, anyway, at the end of the service, I mean, I was just on a spiritual high, and I thought, Lord, this is exactly why you called us to start this church, because we got to preach the gospel and share the gospel and show the love of Jesus to a lot of people who don't yet know him. And I was on such a high, I think I was about the last one to leave the building. And as I walked out into the parking lot and I started to go to the car, uh, my sister Becky was standing by my car and uh, my sister and I were pretty close, but uh, she didn't have a relationship with the Lord at that point. And she had had a lot of problems in her life, health problems and some relational breakdowns. And I had invited her to come and I was so glad she was there. And as I got closer to the car, I realized she was crying. And I remember thinking, I didn't think the sermon was that bad. But as I came up to her, she started to talk to me. And through her sobs, she just said how much fun she had, how much she enjoyed the worship service, and the people were so nice. And she wanted to come back. And she did. The next Thursday night, she was down here with us. And then she came back the following Thursday night, and the following Thursday night, and the following Thursday night. See, what had happened on that Easter Sunday morning, April 18, 2004, was she received the Father's DNA. She was born again. And then in the coming years, she chose to dwell in Jesus and follow him. And even though life threw some hard things her way, she started to grow and she started to serve and she became a core member of Aspen Grove Community Church. And even though she was on a fixed income, she started to give her money. Well, in the last couple of years, her health broke down, and in the beginning of September, she got really critical, and we put her in the hospital, and then they put her in the ICU, and we were hoping that the Lord would help her recover, but the Lord decided it was time for her to leave this life, and he took her to his eternal heavenly home forever. See, she got the Father's DNA. And she chose to dwell in the sun. And that determined her destiny. May the same thing be true of you. May the same thing be true of me. I'm going to ask you to stand. And since we call our church South Fellowship, I'm going to ask you to grab the hand of somebody next to you 
and we're going to have a fellowship benediction here where we connect. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for every person that's here. I pray that your spirit would be with them. You would lead them and guide them and bless them today and this week and continue to keep your great hand of grace on this church. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We honor you in Jesus' name.